Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to episode 379 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words and where reading and writing topics take center stage. I'm your co-host, Sarah Archer, and I'm here today with A.E. Hines to discuss his new poetry collection, Adam in the Garden. Pulitzer Prize finalist Dorian Locke says, with Adam in the Garden, A.E. Hines dares to imagine a new Eden as the speaker finds himself middle-aged and queer in poems that weave sound and image into tightly crafted narratives. In this book, we find a poet willing to risk sentimentality without collapsing into sentiment, a seeker willing to risk blasphemy in his personal search for truth. That's a wonderful endorsement, and we're so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Wow, thanks for having me. So if I had to sum up this collection in one word, I think it might be expansive. I think there's just so much that you're covering here. It's it's quite ambitious in terms of sort of the range of topics. I mean, everything from political and current events, um, climate change, relationships, whether it's with family or your uh, husband or past partners or son or um, religion, which we'll get to in a minute, um, health, aging, domestic life. There's a, a huge scope of things that you're covering. Um, so it was a lot of fun to read for me. Um, but how do you think about kind of the process of assembling these poems into a cohesive collection? Can you just tell us a little bit about sort of the backstory of how this book came to be? Yeah. So I actually started writing this book during my MFA program at Pacific and um it's the second collection so that I've written. So, um, you know, that first collection tends to be, at least for me, it was so autobiographical. It was the things I had noodled for, for most of my life and never taken time before I started writing to put into words. Um, and then you come to think, what am I going to write about next? And I realized in that process that I had touched on a lot of themes that become the same you know, we have certain obsessions that we continue to write about. And so I started thinking about some of the things I were, was, was interested in, whether it be relationships, family of origin. Um, I realized in the first book, I spent so much time in youth, like really early family of origin, that I kind of over uh, glossed over the topics of sort of the, that, that part of youth that is actually joyful and joyous, you know, like, um, and for me, sort of coming out and leaving the South initially, I mean, I moved back to North Carolina in 2021, but I was away for about 30 years. And, and so I, uh, felt like I had given pretty short shrift to the, to the, the, the beauty of being alive and young and having that, that, uh, expansiveness in front of you. At the same time, I look at it through the lens of middle age now. So I found myself kind of going back and forth between, you know, the the themes that that I tend to write about, which is, you know, the body and how the body can betray us, and how we don't really appreciate it when it doesn't. <laughs> we only appreciate it when it seems to. Um, and uh, and betrayal tends to be a, a theme I think uh, underlining the book, whether it's in relationships, whether it's our betrayal of future generations by our unwillingness to change in the now, which I think is touches on the climate um, aspects of the book you mentioned. And so um, it was, it was, it, it ended up, you know, I wanted to try to avoid writing about religious archetypes because I did so much about that in my first book. And then I realized that that might be the thread that bound this together was to, to basically look at 
um, how I was raised, right? How I was raised in sort of that evangelical way and then work and write against that. So write more persona poems, write more um, poems that sort of had the conceit of a myth that you turn on its head. And that became a, uh, one of the threads I could braid through these other fairly disparate topics to try to make it a cohesive collection. Yeah, and I thought that the uh, the religious references were interesting. I mean, obviously from the title, people might expect that there are going to be biblical or religious references throughout. Um, and you touch on everything from Adam to uh, David and Goliath to the apostles. Um, there's a poem where the devil plays a plays a role. <laughs> so you, you really hit a lot of those touchstones. Um, it sounds like maybe that, that came from your upbringing. Can you talk a little bit about the impetus for that biblical framework of reference? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I grew up evangelical. And so I, uh, and it was a very repressive, you know, it was rural Southern evangelical background. And, um, and I'm very suspicious. Um, I consider myself pretty spiritual, but I, I, I'm very suspicious of um, organized religion. And, um, that that seems to pervade my writing. I'm suspicious of organizations, maybe. Um, and so I I realize that it can be it can be um, easy to step away from those things in terms of your day to day life, but difficult to get them out of the way your brain works, if ever. And mm -hmm. so my brain still seems to come back to those stories. And I wanted to, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to sort of look at it from a different lens. So the Adam in the Garden as a, as a title or an organizing principle really for the book um, was, you know, really Adam as mankind, Adam as me, as a human. Um, you know, Adam's also the, you know, sort of first human father in mythology, right? So, so you know, it, it allowed me to sort of think about those father-son relationships, both with my own father, but also with my own son. Um, and then in the garden, you know, there's the planet Earth itself, but there's the body as garden and, you know, paradise. Um, I happen to also be uh, living, when I was writing the book, part-time in Colombia. My husband is Colombian. And so I really felt like I was in the Garden of Eden. And it made me, um, it was so beautiful that you would almost forget, you know, that, that, that the world's burning other places and that there's too much rain where you don't need rain and there's no rain where the earth is crying out for water. And, mm -hmm. Um, and so that became the imagery, I think, that pervades the book because of just that, my own surroundings at the time I was writing it. Yeah, and that comes through in really uh, beautiful and sometimes unexpected ways too, I think. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that with some of the specific poems. But um, this idea of setting too, I mean, you mentioned Columbia. Um, there are poems in North Carolina, some that reference Charlotte specifically, mm -hmm. um, Portland, Sacramento. You, you kind of take us to a lot of different places and even on more of a, a kind of planetary global scale. There's a lot of poems where the sense of place is the planet Earth and kind of how we as a community live here. Um, can you talk about that sort of sense of place in your work, how maybe places that you've lived or visited have influenced your writing? Yeah, it's, it's um, I think there's this, uh, I, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, like it, you sometimes you write something or you put something together and you have some distance from it, but I think I was sort of unresolved. I never thought I would actually revisit living in the South. Um, and when I made the decision um, in 2021 to, to come back here and it's, you know, we also spend time, as I said, in South America, but um, I, I realized, you know, what, you know, what is, what is home, you know, what, where, where, where are we at home, right? So a, a good part of this, 
this book is really examining sort of are we ever at home within ourselves or how do we become at home within ourselves. And so I, I looked at the, the geographic locations of my experience, basically. And, but I'm really kind of asking the question of, do I feel at home? Where is home? What is home? Um, and I think, you know, if I think about what I'm looking to write about next, I think that will probably be a continued part of the exploration for me is this concept of home. And are we ever really there? Yeah. Um, what yeah. does it mean? Are we ever really there? And so I, I wanted to look at, you know, youth versus middle age and then what lies ahead beyond middle age and a lot of where we go and the people that touch us and the experiences that touch us, which in my case involved living in a lot of different places, you know, from my early 20s until um, now, um, has informed who I am. And so that was part of the, the exploration of this piece, of this, of this collection. Yeah, I, I love thinking about that idea of home as a kind of theme too throughout, like whether it's home in a place, home in a relationship with a person who makes you feel at home, home in yourself, home in your community, home in your own physical body that's always constantly evolving. Um, I think that you you touch on that in so many interesting ways here. Um, well, I wanted to get a little bit into some of the kind of more technical and craft aspects for a couple of minutes, if you will indulge the... Let's do it. The, poet nerd <laughs> um but you play around a lot with form in these poems which i think is really interesting i mean you have stanzas of different lengths um some poems are laid out in very specific visual ways on the page with indentation and line breaks um there's one called family history that i loved which almost has like a mirror shape where the two halves of the poem reflect each other um can you tell us a little bit about how you think about sort of the relationship between the form and the the content or the subject in your poetry do you start out with a form in mind you kind of find it as you go along yeah so i so i think that um and, and it's interesting right we're 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 doing something that's completely audio right now mm -hmm. but i you know poetry is both a you know is both a sound it's a sonic but it's also a visual form you know we have the field of the page that we can use to help convey feeling just as we have the language to help convey feeling and of course then as you mentioned you know the way you lineate um, those words on a page can help convey pacing, which can help convey feeling. And ultimately, what are we trying to do? We're trying to actually transmit some human experience to someone who's not us uh, and using this particular medium. So, you know, that's how I view poetry, right? The sonics is really about music for me. It's really about the sound. But the experience of the poem on the page, I think, needs to be or should be as interesting, or at least it should support the feeling that you're trying to convey. And so in the, in the case of like, I know there's one poem in the book um, that's called What I Wish I Learned in, I'd Learned in Therapy. And you know, it is, it is literally has no lineation and minimal if any capitalization, no, no punctuation. And it just basically sort of uses Sesora, uses, it uses these gaps in space to sort of delineate um, words and phrases. And I purposely played with that form to try to create this sense of, you know, the, the dominant image in that poem tends to be nautical. It tends to be this sense of floating, listlessness, um, sort of being at the whims of the elements, the winds and the sea, and not being able to sort of direct the motion, right, of where you're headed. And kind of comparing that to life and how it feels sometimes in life. 
um, no matter what we do and no matter how we wish it was otherwise. Um, and so the form in that is an example. Like I found that form after I had that, that poem because I was looking for something. That, and, and the reason I point that one out is because I don't write that way. I don't normally present poems. In fact, that's probably the only poem in the book like that. I tend to be pretty rigid in terms of I want to create a nice box for my poems and I like them to look a certain way on the page. And so as a challenge to myself, I try to do something different with that one. And the, the purpose, though, hopefully, is that you look at that poem and you say, oh, I feel this sense of you know, the flotsam and the jetsam being pushed around um, the same way that this, the speaker is being pushed around in that poem. Um, but to your, to your original question, I, I really do find form usually as I go. So, for example, I think it starts and ends with the language, and then I will play around with different forms on the page to, do, uh, to figure out what, what feels right for the feeling of the poem and the, the experience visually of the poem. Um, but ultimately, it's what does it sound like in the ear if someone, not you, is trying to read it and decide where to pause and you know, where the breaks are. Um, so, for example, I will often lay out a poem in couplets. I learned this from a mentor many years ago. I almost lay out, almost everything I write, I lay out in couplets before I'm done, just to make sure. Because if you think about it, sort of one line, two line, you get little, multiple two line little poems, and you can really focus in on the language. And you can really focus in on where should the pause be, where should the surprise be, where should you reverse the language so that you provide another surprise to the readers. So they don't know quite where it's going until they have some space to breathe. Um, and then if I can't come up with a better form that fits the poem, it often ends up in couplets. But usually then I experiment with other forms. Um, until I find, And then I just I play with that in version after version until it feels right. Yeah, yeah, that I, that couplet idea is so interesting. Like looking at just kind of broken into these very discrete two-line forms. How does one line play against another or have tension? Um, you have a lot of enjambment that you use in really interesting ways in different poems. You even have a poem that's literally called enjambment, um, where you talk about the technique, but also sort of find deeper resonance in it for relationships or other thematic ideas. But yeah, th there are a lot of poems where you're, you're breaking lines in interesting ways where you can. If you read just to the end of the line, you get one meaning and then you keep going through the phrase and you discover something new. Um, is that also something that you're playing around a lot with? Yes. Are you kind of changing the line breaks a lot from draft to draft? Yes. And the other th advantage of looking at a poem in couplets is sometimes you, you know, we, we talk about the ordering of the information, you know, um, in a poem as a way to, to create some tension. Um, I mean, um, I can't remember, it might have been, it was either Henri Cole or Tony Hoagland who once described a poem as sort of a, a controlled release of energy mm -hmm. uh, in the way it's delivered. And so I think about that a lot in terms of how do you wind this, the rubber band up, if you will, so that the, the readers just sort of pull through the poem as you go. And by laying it out in smaller units, couplets is an example, it could be by line, if it were in a sonnet, for example. Um, you can then play with the, the movement of lines. You may say, all right, I'm going to move this couplet or move this line. I'm going to move it way to the beginning or in the middle. Or what if I just reverse this information, you know, throw in some kind of, you know, subjective clause and just, you know, delay the subject um, long enough to um, create a little more tension. How would that be experienced? I mean, the hardest part is reading it yourself and realizing if the experience has really changed enough because you know what's coming at that point. Um, but the most important part, I think, is, is that's how you normally, like, I, I try to find something by the end of the poem that's really surprised me that I didn't see or didn't think. If I know what I'm going in with, 
it usually doesn't end up being very interesting at the end. So sometimes that exercise of just playing with language and moving things around or asking the counter implication. So if this is what I think this means, what if it meant the opposite of that? Or I think you mentioned this early in the description of the book, you know, if I'm really focused on the, the blades of grass, can I really go, can I, can I shift perspective very quickly and suddenly, you know, out to the planetary scale or to the cos, cosmos as the scale, right? Um, so those are the kind of things that come to me when you kind of break it down line by line, stanza by stanza, and then I just play with ordering until I, some surprise comes. And then I'm learning to be more suspicious of that initial surprise because I think there's often a lot left on the table if you stop there. But that's the part that's difficult for me because I get very excited about, ah, this is what the poem's trying to say and maybe it's got more to say. Yeah, yeah, that sense of surprise I, I love too. And there's, I think it's a Robert Frost quote. There was something like, um, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. So that idea of kind of, you have to surprise yourself and go beyond your initial thoughts. And I see that a lot with the last lines of your your poems too. Um, there are several of your poems where you'll you'll be reading it and reading it and then you get to the last line and all of a sudden it just changes everything that you've just read. <laughs> and you interpret everything that came before in a new way. Is that... Is that something where you kind of find that last line when you get there? Do you ever know the last line and you're kind of writing towards that? Usually if I know the last line and I'm writing towards that, it ends up being a failed poem. Mm. Um, in fact, oftentimes that last line ends up being the title. Um, so at the final product, it's like if you, you, know, you knew too much, right, if you were doing it that way. I mean, I think it was um, Dorian Locks um, who said, um, to me once. She said, yeah, if you know where you're, what you're writing, that's an essay, not a poem. Mm. And so I think you have to suspend, I mean, the, the reason those surprise lines, and it, it kind of goes back to what I said a moment ago, is like, I probably usually quit after I finally get to that surprise, which is why those end up at the, at the ending, um, and uh, often don't go forward from there. But, but that's actually what I'm writing for. Usually, I ask myself, like, what, why does this poem want to exist? Why does it need to exist? And if I can answer that question, usually it's because of whatever those closing gestures are. Mm -hmm. um, if that's what the poem then says to me, I go, this is why this poem needs to exist, and it doesn't need to go back into the slush pile and just you know, wait and have those images recycled into something more worthwhile, um, which is a value judgment, right, on the writing, but only you get to do that when you're writing it. Yeah, yeah but I, I guess that means that if you get to that point, then you find, oh, this poem really has something to say. Um, there's a message here, even if it's not a message in like a preachy kind of sense, but there's something here that is being conveyed to the reader. Right, yeah. Like, I don't think every poem has to be, you know, ultra important to the world, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So I think to be successful. But I think if, you know, there needs to be something at stake. And there needs to be some, I, I guess, you know, like if I read, a, what I go to poetry for is, you know, it's an intense experience, right? It's usually a short experience, which makes every word, every line very, very impactful and urgent. So you can't have any wasted language in a poem. Anything that can, anything the poem can live without needs to come out. Um, and what I look for in other poetry is to be changed in some way. So I want to come to it and I want to feel differently in some way. I want to see something differently. I want to see myself or the world around me slightly differently. It doesn't have to be a big difference, but just slightly different, with, with more coloration, if you will, mm -hmm. right? Less black and white, more diversity than I came to the poem with. And if I got that, I feel pretty satisfied. Plus, I, it has to have a certain level of musicality, usually, for me to 
to really appreciate it, which I think is also sort of part and parcel of how poetry does its work in our brains. It's partially the, the music, that's what, diff, that's what makes it different than prose, I think. You know, prose, we're obsessed with the story, the plot, you know, the things we know for fiction, but in poetry, it's music and it's, it's delight. It's images that surprise and, 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 and enliven us in some way, even if they're negative images or what we would call negative images. For all things Charlotte Meters Podcast, check out charlottemeterspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. Talking about the musicality and, and wanting to hear some of these poems out loud, can you share a few poems from the book with us now that you've wet our appetite? <laughs> oh, sure. I'd love to. I, actually, um, I will share the first poem from the book which is called Astronauts. It was dangerous then, making love in a Carolina backyard. First, the hammock threatened to flip us to the ground, taking with it my nerve. Then you gasped at the sudden reach of my hand, which woke your fear, but not our classmates asleep inside. I spread a blanket and we undressed, silent, back to back, much like we would have in the locker room, each man neatly piling his clothes in opposing corners. The night was clear, the sky knitted with stars. We floated toward each other, summer astronauts on our first expedition, at first clumsy in our experiments, each of us taking our time as fireflies circled our naked bodies like blinking satellites or distant moons, each of us edging closer to discovery we could not yet name. That's so beautiful. I love that. Um, and it just goes in such unexpected directions, too, from start to, to finish. And that was one where I remember specifically noticing the line breaks on the page. Um, it's worth hearing out loud and also seeing visually how you how you lay the poem out, because you do some really interesting things with the, the lines there. Thank you. Should I read another? Yeah, sure. Please do. Okay, so the second poem in the book, I'll read that as well, is called Breakfast in South America. A great blue-green bird follows me down into the garden this morning, darting from cypress to pine, sounding four sacred notes that echo up through the ravine like ancient calls to prayer. It's easy to stop and place a mango on the low stone wall to watch him, watching me, watch him eat it. I don't know the bird's name. Neon blue oval crowning his head. Silver green teardrop at the tip of his tail. But every morning I walk out to find him waiting among the soft ringlets of pale green moss dripping from the trees. See beneath them new roots raking through the dark earth like God's own fingers. It's hard this morning to see the fresh orchids speckled yellow and pinks bubbling up from the trunks, to see this bird propped among the red gold bromeliads still fusing with the branches, to remember this bright world, blue and green, is dying. Yeah, that, that's one of those poems where the ending really adds a whole new dimension to it, I think. 
um, and cast everything before in a different light. Yeah, it, it's, it's um, I don't write a lot about climate, but this, like I said, you know, spending time in such a beautiful place, which is also suffering from obvious effects of climate change. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you look around and you go, my God, this is beautiful. And oh my God, it's so at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes it even more beautiful. But also the, the challenges we face right now, um, more, well, tragic um, and poignant. So yeah, that, that tends to pervade. Um, and, and in some respects, like I said, I, I, that there's a metaphor there for the body itself um, and for sort of the time we have it and sort of the preciousness of our health and, and um, how fleeting it all can be. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, um, it's almost like human mortality on an individual scale, but also the mortality of the planet and, and dealing with that as a theme. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I loved that. And I think you had a, a third poem that you can share with us too, right? Yeah, this poem, um, I actually wrote this poem specifically for a call um, from South Florida Poetry Journal um, a couple of years ago when Florida passed its uh, so-called don't say gay legislation. Um, and, you know, I, uh, it's an elegy, um, but it's written in the, um, it's written in the voice, in the persona of the, of the deceased. And it's called um, Postcard from the Dead. Ten years later, my killers interviewed from their cells will say Matthew Shepard needed killing. Ten years after that, my people lay my ashes to rest in the shining capital under the stone ceiling of a vaulted cathedral, far from the fence in that naked winter field from the icy prison of Wyoming. My killers thought I'd be forgotten when they offered me a ride, then bound my hands and placed that filthy bag over my head. But for 20 years, for 30, far longer than I was alive, our people remember my name. It blooms from their lips like a cold prairie rose. Mm-hmm. That last image is so powerful. Um, and when I read that poem, it reminded me, I, I was at the North Carolina Warriors Network um, fall conference recently, and I had the opportunity to go to a workshop that you led, which was wonderful, very thought-provoking, and you were talking about political poetry. Um, and one poem you shared there was Mark Doty's um, Charlie Howard's Descent. Mm. Um, and, and both are poems that sort of engage with these real-life atrocities that happened, these hate crimes that were perpetrated against young gay men and kind of give a voice to these people who are now voiceless. Um, was, was Mark Doty's poem an inspiration at all for you in writing that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I said in that class, I, when I read, um, and I can't remember how many years ago it was now when I read that poem, um, which is Charlie Howard's descent. And I, uh, it, it made me want to write. It, it, it made me want to, to be a poet, right? I mean, I had been writing, but I hadn't really been publishing at that point. And so, um, and I remember so vividly Matthew Shepard's murder, I think it was 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we were stunned. I mean, we were, I was, you know, I was with a group. I was actually with a group of gay men. We were in like a, a chorus and in, in, uh, we were like performing together. 
um, at an event in uh, Oregon at the time, and the news came out, and our director came out and said, "Ah, this this kid was just murdered, and and um, or he just passed away, right? Because he had been he had been attacked about a week earlier." And you and I remember then thinking, "My goodness, you know, is this is this still happening, right?" And um, then most recently, I mean, we've had you know we still I mean, my goodness, there's people now that that actually think that, you know, people that happen to be transgender don't have the right to exist. Um, and as much as I'd like to say that we've moved forward, and we certainly have moved forward, I mean, I'm legally married to my husband, um, and, you know, I'm very welcome, you know, in, 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 in the, you know, by my neighbors and people that love us. But, but I will say that, you know, there's still this upswell of hate and, and anger, not just towards, you know, LGBTQ plus people, but anybody that's a minority right now. And it's, or anybody who's perceived as other, or anyone who can be perceived and divided against to be other. And um, it's troubling to me. And that was one of the, you know, the, the, the genesis of, uh, the genesis of this poem. Um, and it does motivate a certain degree of, of, you know, what I write or why I feel moved to write. It's weird. I, I either like, I either feel the need to move to speak because of some sense of um, moral outrage or, you know, beauty. Um, and, and so I tend to want to write when something moves me um, because I'm struck by usually something every in the every day that strikes me as beautiful. And that's one well I draw from. And the other well tends to be sort of looking at social justice and, um, and those poems are much harder to write because I think I, we talked about in that, that workshop you referenced, it's difficult to approach those topics without drowning them in outrage. Mm -hmm. And so finding a way in. And so in this example, in this poem, what I decided to do was actually just kind of look forward and imagine the, the, the spirit of Shepard um, talking back to sort of the universe, just speaking out to all of us. Right, so you're still saying my name, and, and I haven't been forgotten, and it, it's, um, I think it's important now. I think it's really important now. I mean, if you look at um, the suicide rate among LGBTQ plus youth, it's astronomically higher than the population at large, and so I feel as though we still need to make space and hold space for people to know, you know, it's okay. It gets better. You're okay, right, and um, anyway. Yeah, yeah, and you you have so many poems here that tap really powerfully into those kind of topical issues, real life things that are going on that um, sometimes we don't even want to face because they're so terrible. And you you have poems that deal with these bigger societal global issues, and then as we've talked about, you also have some very deeply personal poems about your own day to day life, neighbors, family, health, domesticity. Um, there's a tremendous range in terms of what you're covering in the collection and this sort of telescoping in and out between like digging into yourself and your experience and your perspective versus then looking at the world at large and, you know, other people like Matthew Shepard or larger issues like climate change. Um, and I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit on that kind of inward and outward movement of poetry where you're both digging in deep, but then also reaching out to other people. Um, I, I pulled out a quote from Jay Ward, our, our local poet laureate, who I know you know, mm -hmm. um, which I thought might be helpful to kind of think about in this context. This was something that he said on an interview he gave on the podcast previously that we put into um, one of our quote books. He said, poetry is a double-edged sword of catharsis, of healing, of laughter, of kinship, 
because it reaches out just as much as it reaches in, meaning it reaches out to others just as much as it makes you reach inside yourself to write it. Um, and I, I really thought of that when I was reading your collection, because I see both the deep introspection and the kind of reaching out and sharing something with other people or tapping into global issues in in your work. Um, so do you have any thoughts on kind of striking that balance in your poetry? Yeah, one of, it's, I appreciate you saying that because I one of my conscious thoughts as I was assembling this book versus the first book was I didn't want it to sort of scream, I, 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 me, 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 right? Um, and so I wanted to sort of avoid, uh, and this sounds pejorative and I don't mean it that way, but I didn't want it to seem you know, overly narcissistic in its pursuits. <laughs> um, and so my attempt was to make sure, and one way I avoided that is if I wanted to talk about something, for example, if I wanted to sort of beat on, <laughs> you know, sort of explore father-son relationships, I didn't just explore them, you know, so I would use persona. You mentioned the, uh, you know, the poem where the devil makes an appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that really is a father-son poem, and it's about father-son relationships and fathers and sons' expectations of each other. So I used persona and I used, you know, mythology in a playful way because I think they're trading, they're drinking whiskeys in a bar in my poem, um, to, 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 to look at father-son relationships in a way that wasn't just going to be me rehashing my own relationships with my father or you know, my own shortcomings as a father with my own son. So um, I made a conscious effort to sort of braid together those themes, but not always have, you know, Matthew Shepard is the same, you know, way in this poem. I wanted to honor Shepard's memory, but I didn't want to make it, you know, a speaker that sounds like me um, lamenting, you know, how the evils of the world. I wanted, you know, sort of the empowerment of giving him a voice because his voice had been taken away um, and his life had been taken away at such a young age. So that's that's how I went about it. And then I just naturally, because of, you know, my attraction to sort of nature, couldn't help but veer into the climate mm-hmm. aspects of, you know, the the current sort of environmental catastrophe we're facing around the world. And so hopefully, and I'm glad you said that because it says to me that I succeeded in trying to make sure that it wasn't, it wasn't so you know, um, self-centered in the view or the, the speaker of each poem doesn't feel like it's just a substitute for the poet, um, which they, we generally do. I mean, anytime we're talking about I, we pretend it, you know, sometimes it's not the poet, but it is the poet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it limits, you know, there's only, it limits sort of our view, I think, as readers if if we don't feel a more expansive point of view or perspective beyond one person's life. And one person's life can be incredibly interesting. We enjoy reading about other people's stories and their perspectives. But when you see more and wider range, as you pointed out, I think you actually can place your, you, you have more room to place yourself as a reader, um, which hopefully this book does for that reason. Yeah, I, for sure, I think it does. And it creates a kind of beautiful balance too and um, with the scope of the collection. Um, and another topic that you touch on a lot here is relationships and even romance. Um, mm-hmm. There are a number of wonderful poems about your husband and talking about kind of the, the small joys of day-to-day life with, with a domestic partner and in that relationship. And um, some of them are a little bit steamy too. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I, think, uh, I think we're planning on releasing this in February. So in the spirit of Valentine's season, um, can you tell us what you think makes a good love poem? Uh mm. Well, <laughs> sex doesn't hurt. Um, yeah, there's certainly some erotic poetry um, 
in, in this collection, but that really goes back to sort of my desire to, to not gloss over only the negative aspects mm -hmm. of, of our corporal <laughs> experience. Um, and so, yeah, I, well, I mean, I don't know how to say this any other way. What makes a good love poem? I mean, being in love helps. I, I, uh, you know, I'm very blessed. You know, I, my second, um, this is my second marriage, second long-term relationship. Um, my first husband, I mean, we weren't legally married. It was before marriage had, had been legalized. Um, but, you know, Juan Diego and I have been together for almost eight years and, and I'm still madly in love with him and very lucky to have him. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, what, what makes a good love poem? Um, probably a certain level of attention to detail. Um, I think, you know, one of the, the poems, you know, I'm talking about something, he's cutting vegetables at the counter. There's another poem where we're washing dishes by hand together. There's a poem where, um, and, there, and there's other, you know, conceits in those poems and other, other, other uh, controversies in those poems. But, but, but if you think about those everyday moments, um, you know, and maybe it's because I'm now middle-aged, I, I, I'm starting to have a real appreciation for those everyday moments. And I never really, when I was younger, had a lot of attention or, or uh, didn't have a lot of attention or patience um, for them. I certainly didn't have a lot of appreciation for those things as much as I do now. And that's really been the gift my relationship with my husband has given me is, you know, he reminds me to slow down and he reminds me to take pleasure in, you know, eating something slowly and delicious, you know, and really enjoying it and savoring it. Um, and so uh, I haven't answered your question about what makes a good love poem. No, at I least <laughs> I haven't consciously known what it, what makes a good love poem. Well, I think that's a great point, though. Like the, the details, they give a certain authenticity and specificity, I think, too, to your poems. Which, I mean, you know, there have been a million and one love poems. It's one of the most popular topics in poetry and writing and since back in the days of, you know, yeah. Homer and oral, oral storytelling. Um, but I think using those little details make it about, you know, the poet and the person that the poet is writing about. Um, and they make it feel real and they make it specific to, to that experience. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, and I, I want, like I said, you know, I felt like my first book was filled with more, more darkness. I mean, not that this book doesn't have plenty of um, death, and it, it does, but it, it, it uh, I mean, well, what are we as poets obsessed with besides sex and death mm -hmm. and um, commas? Um, <laughs> I forget who said that, not me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's true that um, if I think about sort of the, 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 the uh, like I think it was Danusha Lamaris told me, because I sort of look at you as the poet of the everyday. Mm -hmm. right? So it's like you fall into these things and you fall through these little holes of, um, into to sort of surprise from those everyday moments, but I'm really obsessed with those everyday things. And again, I think it probably comes from a later in life decision to stop and pay attention mm -hmm. to those little things that make life make life life, make life worth living. Oof, cliche. It's true though. <laughs> yeah, there's think, always truth. Yeah, and you, you express that idea in a lot of very beautiful and eloquent ways throughout the collection too. I think in poem after poem. Um, well, and as we start to wrap up here, um, there's a question that we like to ask most of our authors, which is, if you could go back in time and give a piece of advice to yourself as a younger writer, what would you want to tell yourself? Oh, I would say start sooner. I, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I'm sort of a good example of the midlife writer. I mean, I was only writing poems 
at all, probably since 2015, wow. 2016. Um, and, you know, so I'm, you know, I feel this high motivation to catch up. You know, I'm, I'm, I, would, I would encourage myself to have made more time for reading. Um, I was obsessed with, you know, my career and business. And, and even though I'd had a, a, an interest and love of, of writing when I was a young kid, you know, that was just not considered a, a pursuit that was worthy of your time and attention because it didn't have any kind of formula attached to capitalism. And so, um, and so yeah, I would encourage myself to, like, read more and keep writing throughout. I would have made more time to write um, at an earlier age. Yeah. Um, but that said, you know, I'm 50, I'll be 53 in my, in, when this airs, I think. Um, so, you know, it's not too late for anybody who wants to get writing. Don't wait. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great advice. But also, I mean, to have been doing this for less than 10 years, the, the quantity and the quality of what you're producing is amazing. So it, it just goes to show, like, if you if you want to do it, put your mind to it and you can put that work out there. Yeah, you have to do. You have to sit down and do the work, but it, but it hopefully, I mean, this is a pretty joyous work. Most of the time, it's a pretty joyous work <laughs> um, for me. Certainly the creation part is. The revision takes a lot more time to learn to love it, mm-hmm. um, and most of it is revision. Um, but yeah, it is a joy to, I mean, it is a, a privilege and honor to have the time in this space. I mean, one of the things, you know, we probably don't talk enough about is that the there's a certain level of um, inequity that even, I mean, it's difficult for people, you know, working day to day to find time to read or write, or much less buy the books to read and write, um, based on, you know, learning and teaching themselves. So, yeah, I mean, it is a privilege to be able to do it, and, and it's a joy to share it. A joy to share and spend time with people that enjoy language and appreciate words, yeah. which is why I appreciate you having me. Yeah, well, and we appreciate you being here so much. Um, I, I love this collection. Everybody go and check it out, Adam in the Garden. And uh, thank you so much for being here, Earl, and sharing your, your beautiful work with us. And listeners, thank you for being here. Until next time, read on and write on. <laughs> <laughs>